If you're looking at the uh, bulletins, you'll see who's speaking and what they're speaking on. And uh, I had to cover two chapters this morning. Two chapters. So uh, we're going to do our best to try to do that. Uh, some of you that know me, I like to, I could have given a message on just a couple of these verses here, but we have a lot of verses to cover. Um, and uh, so uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to just uh, read a verse to you. Uh, it says this in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so that's the purpose why we're going through Genesis here. Right? These are things that have been written in the past, and they're written for our learning. For our learning. Uh, and it's not just that we want you to understand some foundational truths uh, that are laid out here in the book of Genesis, but that also, as all of us together, right, as we endure the teaching of these scriptures in Genesis, hopefully for each and every one of us, we could say that it would provide encouragement for us, and it would give us hope. Give us hope. Um, let's just uh, look to the Lord. Our Father, we thank you again for your precious word. Uh, We are thankful for the ministry of thy spirit in uh, just revealing uh, to these men so long ago uh, these things to write down. And we're thankful for his ministry even today and illuminating these truths into our hearts, into our minds. And so we do pray uh, that your word uh, this morning would encourage our hearts. And we also pray that uh, we might be able to present Uh, your son through these words this morning glorious because he is certainly glorious and uh, worthy of all glory uh, and praise and thanks and so we just ask this in Jesus name amen Um, as you're there too uh, I just wanted to read one more thing for you is what we're going to try to do in these two chapters is we're going to look at uh, two gentlemen here we're going to look at Abram obviously In fact, we're going to be looking at Abram, who will then be Abraham, a lot as we go through the rest of this book. Uh, But we're going to look at his nephew Lot, too, today. And so as we look at these two men, uh, again, you don't have to turn there, but just stay there in Genesis. Uh, 1 Corinthians describes to us different types of people, right? Uh, And in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, uh, let's see, uh, 2, beginning in verse 15, it says, But he who is spiritual judges all things yet he himself is rightly judged by no one for who has known the mind of the lord that he may instruct him but we have the mind of christ and i brethren could not speak to you as spiritual people but i had to speak to you as to carnal as to babes in christ i fed you with milk and not with solid food for until now you were not able to receive it even now you are still not able for you are still carnal For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Paulus, are you not carnal? Carnal. So you see two different uh, people are described here. There's this spiritual person, a spiritual man, and then there's this carnal man, which means fleshly. Fleshly, right? Having the nature of flesh or pertaining to the flesh. Um, And so... The reason I share that with you is that I think we're going to see kind of an example of someone who is spiritual uh, today in that of Abram, and then someone who I would characterize more as carnal. Carnal. If we didn't have some verses in the New Testament, we may not even consider Lot to be a believer. Uh, But it seems as if the New Testament considers him a just man, 
But uh, based on some of the things we're going to look at today, perhaps Lot may be better described as a carnal Christian, uh, if we could say that. But um, I don't have any alliteration for you today other than this. Um, if we were going to give a title for chapter 13, which we're going to look at, I would say Abraham had a lot to lose. Chapter 14, Abraham had a lot to gain. And in 15, I'm not going to cover that today, but I would say Abraham had a lot to learn. Okay? That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at chapters 13 and 14 this morning. Um, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 13, it says, Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. The first point I want to make today is this, is realize that your past sin will impact your present life. Realize that your past sin will impact your present life. James did a great job showing you last week that, yes, listen, Abram made some mistakes and he repented, returned back to Bethel, the house of God, left Egypt. But we're going to see today that there are consequences for sin. And so here we see what happened. And, and it's important for us to know that all too often, right, what you've done in the past will impact you in the present. And it reminds me of a, a commercial I used to love on TV. I don't know if they even show it anymore, but it's kind of like a semi-dark scene in the kitchen, right? A woman who I think is obviously his wife, uh, she's seated there with this sad and troubled look on her face. And we've all seen that, right? Us husbands, we come home, we see that look, and we're like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble, right? And so her husband walks in, sees the look, and says, what? Right? He then goes on to ask some questions. He goes, is this about the diamond that I bought you? He goes, listen, zirconium looks just like the real thing. <laughs> and she looks at her hand, looks at her diamond, kind of like surprised. And then he goes, is this about my time in prison? <laughs> and she looks at him with a deep, sad look, and she said, you drank all the milk. <laughs> Listen, Abraham, right, he's reaping the fruit of two disobedient acts. One, he has Lot with him. If you go back and look at the instructions that the Lord gave to Abram, he was to leave his what? His family. Lot was not supposed to be with him. And he brings Lot with him. And because now he has Lot with him, now they're going to have, they, they can't coexist. As we just read there, right? They could not dwell together because their possessions were so great. But Abraham, Abram was never even supposed to bring Lot. He was supposed to leave his family behind. But he has Lot there with him. And so that's one of his um, disobedient acts. But the second one is this. They had obtained wealth apart from trusting God. James explained that to you last night. Was that remember Abram? was concerned about himself, right? Told his wife to lie. Say that, they, you know, she was his sister. And because of that, the Pharaoh was very interested uh, in her and offered lots of stuff to them, lots of possessions, uh, all because they deceived Pharaoh. And so Lot was part of that too, right? Lot got his wealth because Abram deceived Pharaoh. And so, just a side note here, I think one of the um, worst things that you can do in your life is to get money 
or to get resources apart from obedience to God's ethical standards. I, I think it's a terrible thing to gather resources, to gather finances, right? Um, apart from trusting in God's faithful provision. Perhaps maybe even another one of the worst things you can do is give your children easy money. Some parents give their teenagers or even young adults, right, things that took them 10, 20, 30 years to get for themselves. And I'm not saying that, you know, you uh, can't help your child buy their their first new car. Maybe you want to help them, right? Allow them to uh, make pay you back installments or maybe have them help you work on the car or whatever it may be. Um, and it doesn't have to be a car. It could be anything, right? But I think that we got to be careful um, and watch out for the danger of, I would just say, easy money. Money that you didn't earn. Money that you didn't work for. Um, in fact, I know of, uh, of people who have wealth, who have those things, and, and they'd say, hey, listen, I'm not going to give that to my kids until they learn and understand what riches mean. Right? Sometimes when they're young, it's hard to give someone a lot of money quickly. Right? Proverbs is all full of gaining a lot of money in a short amount of time, what I would call easy money. Right? It could be detrimental. I mean, look how many people have committed suicide who've won the lottery. It's strange. Right? You would think winning the lottery, you're set for life. You know? But we need to be careful. Here, Lot, right, all of a sudden has a great amount of wealth. A, a very large herd, which came at, of course, at a disobedient act. They deceived Pharaoh and received much in order to gain favor, thinking that Sarah was Abram's sister. And so we see here that now, because of sins in the past, Right? Because of at least two disobedient acts on, on behalf of Abram, now they're, they are so large that they cannot dwell together. And in verse 7 here it says, And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, the Canaanites and the Perizzites that dwelt in the land. You see, Abram was in fellowship with God now. We learned about that last week. And any time that you are in fellowship with God, right, the devil will go to work to cause division and strife. There was a problem with space, right? And for the herdsmen of Lot, they were disputing with the herds, they were disputing with the herdsmen of Abram. And the land could not support all of their livestock. I'll just say this. Nothing causes non-believers to mock the true God more than to see real believers fighting with each other. Nothing, I think. Nothing causes non-believers to mock the true God more than to see those who claim to be followers of Christ bickering with each other and fighting with each other and striving with each other. And this is what the devil looks to do here. Abram's in fellowship with God and he looks to bring in strife. He looks to bring in division amongst Abram and Lot. 
And in verse 8 it says, So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Now, Abram, as I just said, he may live with the results of his sins, right? But he has learned from them nonetheless. And that's important for us to remember. Okay? Yes, listen, our past sins can impact our present, right? But it's important that we remember to learn from them. To learn from them. And Abram's showing us someone who is learning from some of his past mistakes. Abram, as I said, a spiritual man, he seeks to solve the problem. He sees that they are brethren. That's an important thing to remember, right? Sometimes when, when the, the enemy tries to bring in strife and bring division, we need to remember that we are brethren, right? We are brothers and sisters. And Abram recognized, he said, listen, we're brethren. We should not fight with one another. And in true courtesy and in kindness and in unselfishness, Abram offered Lot his choice of all the land. Interesting. Even though Abram was older than Lot, even though Abram was the chief of their tribe or or clan, and even though the land had been promised by God to Abram, he allowed his nephew to have first choice. A lot of times, right, we tend to make selfish decisions because we think it's right. Right? Abram would, I think, would have been in the right to just and for any of those reasons. Hey, I, I'm older than you. Okay, I'm the chief of this clan. And guess what? God promised me this is my land. But no. Abram had unselfishness as he listened. You choose whatever you want. I'll take whatever's left. In Philippians, we read that in lowliness of mind. Christ, right, he esteemed others better than himself. And Abram shows that here. Now, Abram, I believe, had a divine viewpoint. And he knew that God would provide for him and keep his promise. Abram had learned, right, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, that the servant of God must not quarrel. That's the instructions given to Timothy. If you're a servant of God, There must not be strife. No striving. No quarreling. And so Abram acted to avoid strife. Listen, I know Christians do have personality conflicts. We have problems at times, right? Which often leads to strife and trouble. I think it's only with a spirit of submission like Abram's that the problem will be resolved. Ephesians 5.21 instructs us to submit to one another in the fear of God. Yes, in uh, 1 Peter says, All of you be submissive to one another, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The reason why Abram could have a gracious spirit is because he believed in God. Right? We can have a gracious spirit to one another because we also have faith in God. Right? Those of us who are spiritual right, should have a gracious 
spirit, whether it's with your spouse, <laughs> whether it's with your children, whether it's with the family of God. Right? If we believe God, then we should also have a gracious spirit towards one another and do whatever we can to avoid strife and division. And so by faith, Abram could set his own selfish interests aside and let God take care of him and the situation. And then in verse 10, it says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Verse 13 is interesting, right? I think verse 13 uh, suggests danger not only in Lot's geographical direction, but his spiritual direction. Right? I think that verse there is there for a reason, right? To indicate to us not just in the, the bad decision that Lot's going, but also indicates where he's at spiritually, okay? Lot had not learned the same lessons that Abram did from their time in Egypt <laughs> and coming out of there, okay? Lot, he chooses the lush pastures of the Jordan Valley right next to the sin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? Lot was interested in getting only what he wanted. Now, again, like I said, except for Second uh, Peter, right, we would never think that Lot was a true believer, but he is called just, right? As I said, some may commonly call Lot a carnal believer. He exercised faith in God for salvation, but his walk in faith was weak and erratic. He was self-centered rather than God-centered. He had a human viewpoint, right? instead of a divine viewpoint as Abram had. But he had a human viewpoint towards life. And the reason that Sodom, which was a place of sin, looked so good to Lot, because he had no spiritual discernment. Though he was a believer, he was a world borderer. Right? Have we ever experienced that in your walk? Right? Even though as a believer, sometimes we like to hang out right on the border of the world. Right? Not quite in it, right? But we get to, you know, be right there next to it, you know, enjoy a little bit of it, right? Someone said this once, I thought it was great, as far as Lot. Um, Lot got grass for his cattle, while Abram got grace for his children. Right? That's all Lot got. Uh, in fact, the fact that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord didn't restrain Lot from his choice. And I want you to notice the steps that Lot takes towards worldliness. Okay? Notice the steps he takes. First, he experiences strife. Right? So there's strife amongst his herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. And, and I, at least in my short experience, I've noticed that a lot of believers, right, that have entered into the world or, and have really walked away from the faith, it began at a moment of strife. It's unfortunate, but I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that say, hey, listen, 
you're, you're a believer? You don't go to church anymore? He goes, yeah, I'll never step foot in church again. Well, why not? Well, because I had this quarrel with someone in the church. What? But oftentimes it begins with some kind of quarrel, some kind of strife between so-called believers. People who believe in God and neither one would have a gracious spirit. And there begins always with a strife. And then look what happens with, with Lot here, right? It says that he lifted his eyes and saw. I forgot, we are to walk by what? Faith, not by sight. Hmm. Yeah. It's important for us to gauge where we're at, right? Are we walking by sight or are we walking by faith? Because it's really hard today to walk by faith. I don't know if you realize that. Today, there's just so, it's so easy to walk by sight. It's so easy when you get that paycheck that comes every other week or every week or whatever it is, right? When you've got medicine that you could take anytime you want. Right? It's hard to walk by faith. It's just so easy. Everything's right there for you. But a lot it says he lifted his eyes and he saw in verse 10. And then in verse 11, he chose. You know, I can't tell you how many times people who have gone into the world, people who have walked away from the faith, and you share with them, you talk about them, they always want to blame someone else. They want to say, oh, well, it's not my fault. This person said this to me 10 years ago, and that's why. And I'm like, but you chose. You still had a decision to make. Now, you don't know how hard my life has been, you know. Nobody reached out to me. Okay, that could be true. But you still chose. You made a decision. And this is where Lot's at. Lot chose to go border right next to the sin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He chose to do that. Nobody made him do that. He had a choice all for himself. And then it says, of course, he pitched his tent as far as. And really what that means is near, or actually, which is amazing, it means towards. He pitched his tent so he could see Sodom. He was close enough where he could see Sodom. And then we're going to see in verse uh, chapter 14, verse 12, sad testament, but when the uh, armies come in and they take Lot, guess where he is? He's in Sodom. He's there. You know, we don't just go from here right into the world. Don't get, it never happens that way. It's always a progression. There's always maybe some strife, some quarrel, and then it gets you looking, walking by sight, not by faith. And then you choose for yourself to go a little bit, just dabble a little bit in the world, and then you find yourself in the world. And this is where Lot's at. Okay? In fact, we read later on, uh, in this uh, book, we're going to see that he even sits at the gate of Sodom, which was the place of political power. Before we read in chapter 19, he becomes a local official in Sodom as well. Sin City. He's a local official. Yeah. And so I want us to note here that Lot, when he separated himself from Abram, who was spiritual, Right? He went progressively downhill spiritually. I believe fellowship among true Christians is essential for spiritual growth. The city of Sodom and the plain of Jordan, which looks so attractive and appealing to Lot, would in a very short while, we're going to look at this, right? Be destroyed. It'll become a desert. And so I want us to note too that the human viewpoint always ends up in disaster. 
always. It may look good, right, from a human perspective. But if you don't have a divine viewpoint and it's a human viewpoint, it'll end in a disaster. And the contrast between these two men is very interesting. Like I said, Abraham being spiritual, Lot being carnal, right? Abram, we see, is a spiritual man, walking by faith, gracious, right? Seeking to glorify God, looking for a city maintained by God, possessing the land, happy. (laughs) That's the spiritual man. That's Abram. Right? Lot, however, is a carnal believer, walking by sight, selfish, glorifying self, going to a city that God destroyed, eventually possessing a cave, miserable. What do you want to be? A spiritual man or woman or a carnal believer? Look at verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Abram made his offer, and Lot jumped to take advantage of it. And for the first time, Lot is truly separated from Abram. Just note one point here is that faith sometimes separates. Faith separates. In this case, separation from Lot, right? Sometimes walking by faith frees you up to relinquish your rights because of your confidence in God's promises. Right? Abraham didn't like hold on to any rights that he had in offering Lot whatever he wanted. He could relinquish his rights. We're living in a time, again, where everybody feels they have their own rights. Okay? If we are walking by faith and we're going to our confidence in God's promises, you can relinquish your rights. Faith separates you from that. And so again, we need to be on guard for that. That we're not a people that say, listen, I deserve this. This is not fair. If we put our confidence in God's promises, we can relinquish our own rights, just as Abram did. And so now the Lord appears to Abram to reassure this man of faith. Now, I would imagine, I don't know, this is speculation, right? That maybe Abram had some anxious moments (laughs) when he decided to let Lot take whatever he wanted. Maybe he thought, I don't know if this is a good idea or not. (laughs) I'm not sure. The reason I suggest that is here the Lord has to come in and reassure him. Say, listen, it's okay, right? But now in full obedience, Abram is again blessed by God. The promise of the land and the seed is reaffirmed to him. I want us to note something here. Abram did not lose. Abram was blessed. Okay? You may think sometimes if you're gracious and you relinquish your own rights, you may think, okay, I'm just going to lose here. That's not losing. God seeks to bless those types of things. Abram doesn't lose here, but he's blessed. See, when a person acts by faith and obedience to God in some manner, God manifests himself to that person. 
to emphasize what he is, okay, and also what he does. Okay? I think that's important for us to know. When we act in faith and we act in obedience to God, and whatever that is, right, God, he loves to manifest himself to us. Right? When he sees that we are trying to live by faith, because that's what pleases God, right? And we're seeking to trust him in, in whatever the matter it is, right? He likes to come and really, he likes to emphasize, right, what we will be or what he will be to us. He likes to emphasize that to us and reassure us in what he will do for us. In John 14, it says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You want a, a closer relationship with God? right? You want God to manifest himself to you? Well, then obey him through faith. And whatever, whatever matters you're in right now, in all areas of life, if you seek to obey him, he will manifest himself to you to you and so note that spiritual separation under god and away from the world system brings god's blessing in galatians it says but god forbids that i should boast except in the cross of our lord jesus christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and i to the world notice that god instructed abram to walk throughout the land and see his possession that's pretty neat right god says hey listen i want you to go for a walk you go walk. I want you to walk through. This is all yours right here. And so we are also to appropriate, right, God's promises by faith. God doesn't want you to just, you know, know what his promises are. He wants you to walk in them. All the things that God has promised you that you know, that he brings to your mind, God says, listen, okay, I want you to walk through that now. I want you to appropriate that by faith. Don't just say you believe it and then not claim it. Right? We need to seize the promises of God. And he tells Abram there in verse 16, get up, walk in the land, right? Walk through it. It's length, it's breadth, it's width, breath, everything. And you know what's interesting, right? Is that he tells Lot, right? You choose wherever you want to go. Where, which direction does Lot choose, right? He goes what? East? When the Lord comes to uh, um, Abram, look at verse 14. Lift your eyes now and look from the place we are. Northward, southward, and westward. Is that what he says? Oh, wait, he says eastward too. The part that Lot took, that's Abram's too. We need to appropriate the promises of God by faith. Seize the promises that God has given us. And so in verse 18 it says, And Abram moved his tent, and he went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Uh, Abram moves his tent, right, and he dwells in the plain of Mamre. Mamre means fatness or strength or prosperity. Right? Again, Abram didn't lose. God blessed Abram. Right? And then also notice that Mamre is in Hebron, which speaks of fellowship. Fellowship. And I love too that here, this is the third time that we hear Abram builds an altar to the Lord. To me, I just think it's interesting that Abram always builds an altar for God, never a house for himself. 
We haven't heard yet of Abram building a house for himself. He's got a tent, right? But three times already he's built an altar for God. And so I want you to note here that true believers, right, we're pilgrims, (laughs) right? We are strangers to this earth. This is not our home, (laughs) just like Abram, okay? In a sense, right, we don't build our house here, right? We are just pilgrims. We're just sojourning, passing through. And so we can never permanently pitch our tent here. There'll be one day we'll be able to when we reach that heavenly city, that new Jerusalem in heaven. But while on this earth, right, we can stay in fellowship with God and receive His spiritual blessings. And then we get to chapter 14. I'm not going to read verses 1 through 12 for time's sake. Um, But what happens here is this. We have four Mesopotamian kings that were at war with five kings who occupied the general area around the Jordan Valley, or we call the present Dead Sea. Notice how I just say kings. I didn't try pronouncing their names or anything like that, okay? These five kings, right? It seems that they had paid tribute to Caterlaomer. Okay, Kedaleomer, that's the one I'll try to pronounce, right? It seems like he's the one who's in charge there. And they paid tribute to him for 12 years, 12 years. And then we read that they are now rebelling. And so Kedaleomer and the kings who were with him, they made war, they swept through the valley and they conquered it, right? Then they turn around and they come up through the valley from another direction and they make war with the Amalekites, the Amorites, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and a few other kings. Kedaleomer and the other three kings demoralized and wiped out much of their enemies' armies. And those who lived in the Jordan Valley, they fled to the highlands of Noab. One thing I just want to note in this, which is very interesting, right, is there's a reason for all this, right? We're going to get to that, to the sovereignty of God. um, But the invasion bypassed Abram, (laughs) right? Interesting. Again, I think because Abram is trusting God, God protected him. We don't hear of all invasion happening where Abram is, okay? But pretty much everyone else has been invaded and conquered by uh, Kedaliomer and the kings that are with him. Now, the importance of this invasion is to show its effects upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Right? For these kings were soundly defeated and they fled to the hills. Their cities were sacked. We see that in verse 11. And in verse 12, very important, they captured who? Lot. They captured Lot. Can you imagine the thoughts that went through Lot's head? Right? Okay? He, his family, their goods all being carted off to a distant land. Right? He who had been so shrewd is now a what? A slave. Right? All because of his selfish choice. Listen again, if you have a human viewpoint, it will only lead to disaster. And here's where Lot is now. Here he is, him, his family, everything he has is being carted off as slaves to a distant land. And then we get to verse 13 of Genesis chapter 14. It says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of 
Eskom, brother of Anir, and they were allies with Abram. Um, Read a little more. And now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants. That's right, just 318 uh, who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dam. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot um, and his goods as well as the women and the people. So it seems as if one had escaped from the battle uh, in desperation, flees to Abram to tell him what happened to Lot. I love that Abraham is identified here as the Hebrew. The Hebrew. I think it's the first time that it occurs in Scripture. Um, and certainly we all know that um, it was a title used of the Israelites, Hebrew. Uh, but I think there's a couple things that's significant about that is that it seems that Abram is beginning to become pretty well known in the land in which he lives. Right? He's known as Abram the Hebrew. Uh, but not only that, the word is very interesting, right? And of course, that's just a testimony to Abram's faith, right? Um, but also, uh, it means Hebrew, one who has come from the other side. Or some may say it's the crossing over one. The crossing over one. Now, literally, Abram had, right? By faith, Abram had um, come from the other side, right? He had crossed over, right? But I think it's a, a tremendous uh, encouragement to me, right? Is that, am I known as the one who's come from the other side, right? When your friends, when your family, they knew what you were like before you knew Christ, and now that you know Christ, they go, man, you're that one who crossed over, right? Right? It should be. Just as Abram is known as Abram the Hebrew now, are you known as John the Christian? You're that one, right, that used to be over there, but now you've come from that other side. I believe Abraham's faith is already being a witness. In fact, I don't even know if these three guys that are with him, they very well could also claim faith in Jehovah now. It's amazing that Abram is having influence in the place where he's at. Do we have influence where we are? When people look at us and say, man, definitely you have been someone who has crossed over, right? Someone who has come from the other side. I love uh, John Newton's quote. In fact, I think I shared it earlier this year, but it's worth repeating. He says, I am not what I might be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not even what I hope to be. But I thank God I am not what I once was. And I can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? It should be true of all of us. Listen, we're not where we want to be yet. Okay? But we should not be where we once was. If you're in the same place you were last year, you've got to go before the Lord. And certainly you don't want to be anywhere you were like before you got saved. Right? John Newton understood. He goes, man, I praise God that I'm not where I once was. Right? I'm, I'm that guy who came from the other side. I've crossed over. And so Abram here, he sets out to rescue Lot. You know, this is important to note too, is backsliders bring not only misery on themselves, but trouble on others. And please know that. If you want to live in sin and you want to play around with the world there, know that you are not just hurting yourself. You're causing trouble for all those who love you and care for you. 
And same here with Lot. Abram's faith displays itself in his willingness to involve himself for another's sake without hesitating to play it safe. It's a tremendous testimony of Abram. You know, that he, at the risk of his own life, right? And it just reminded me of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, who Abraham is a picture of, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You see, one of the most needed and yet most neglected ministries in the body of Christ is that of going after and seeking to restore a brother or a sister who has fallen into sin. We avoid doing it for a number of reasons. One is, we don't like confrontation. Right? Pretty true. If you've got someone who's living in sin, if you're going to go to them and say, hey, cut it out, there's going to be some confrontation. We don't like confrontation, right? Sometimes, right, we don't do it because we don't know what to say or how to go about it. So it's uncomfortable. We don't want to be judgmental or critical, right? Which is natural, right? We're aware of our own shortcomings, right? We don't want to come across as hypocrites, right? And so what we say is, eh, it's none of my business. Perhaps this morning, the courage of Abram would encourage you to go after that one and not let that person just go on in his or her sin. You see, restoring a sinning brother or a sinning sister calls for a faith that is both bold yet humble. Bold enough to confront sin, yet humble enough to see how prone I am to sin. Bold enough to do battle, right, with the forces of darkness yet humble enough to depend on the Lord so that I don't fall into sin in the process of seeking to restore my brother. But man, it requires courage. It requires boldness. Yet it requires humility too. And Abram does that. Abram was that kind of, had that kind of bold, humble faith, right, in God. In chapter 13, right, he humbly yielded to Lot and gave him first choice of the land. When Lot chose the most fertile land and then was taken captive, Abram didn't say, serves him right. I've done that. I see a brother or sister in sin, and you know maybe you warned them, or you tried to tell them, man, my first thought, it serves them right. I told them. Abram wasn't like that. Could have easily just said, Lot. Serves him right. He boldly went and rescued Lot. And so from Abraham, one, Abram, we learn this, right? It's 318 men, right? Did we just tell you what happened, right? How they just, just demoralized Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, they just completely defeated him. Here's Abram with 318 guys. He goes up and says, not a problem. We'll take these. We'll take their goods, take the people back. Right, so one thing I learned from Abram here is that if God be for us, who could be against us? Right? If God be for us, who could be against us? And from Lot, again, we're looking at this contrast, we learn that one of the characteristics of the carnal man is that they are ungrateful. There's no record at all of Lot's appreciation to Abram. 
for the rescue. And his real contempt is this. He goes back to Sodom. That's not why Abram did it. Right? Many of us know how many times we've tried, we've restored a brother or a sister just to watch them fall back into it again. Right? But there's also something really cool here about this story. Um, like I said, not just a picture of restoring maybe a, a, a sinning brother or a sinning sister, but I think, think we see a beautiful picture of the gospel. This event provides for us just a beautiful illustration of the salvation of God. Lot chose to go his own way, seeking his own interests over the promise of God to bless men through Abram. As a result of his self-seeking, Lot had to face the consequences of his sin. Rather than peace and prosperity, he found shame and slavery. And catch this now, at the point where Lot was able to do nothing to correct his errors or to free himself from bondage, Abram, Abram, I believe a picture of Christ here, at great personal risk, won the victory and won his release. Saving Lot was the sole reason for Abram's daring rescue. In spite of Lot's disregard for Abram, Abram rescued him from the consequences of his own sin. Does that sound familiar? We ourselves were in bondage. We ourselves were lost because of our own decision. We chose to reject God and His promise. And yet, in spite of, we had no regard for God, God still rescued us. He won the victory. He was the one who won our release. And the good news of the gospel is that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from our sin. The consequences and the penalty of our sins were suffered by our rescuer, Jesus Christ, at the cross of Calvary. And then in verse 17, it says, The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of um, Kedalomer and the kings who were with him. The king of Sodom, who was never up to any good, just know that, okay? Never up to anything good. He goes out to meet Abram. Um, the king of Sodom is like Satan's adversary. Okay? And he wants to make a deal with Abram. I want us to note this. That no test a man faces is greater than that of success. No test man faces is greater than that of success. Abram just had a great victory. Right? successfully rescued Lot and the people, right? In Proverbs 27, verse 21, it says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. <laughs> yeah, Abram's going to get tested here. He's going to be tested. And that's how it is, right? Satan often tempts the believer after a great spiritual victory. Right? Perhaps you're experiencing victory in your life right now. Be on guard. Be on guard. 
because the enemy would like nothing more to bring something in, right, uh, to test you. And so we're going to see how this applies here to Abram. Um, but before the king of Sodom could even say anything, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, appears out of nowhere with words that Abram, excuse me, desperately needed to hear. Isn't that great? We're going to look at who Melchizedek represents. But it isn't just like our Savior, right? Those moments we may have victory and then the enemy comes in, right, and wants to test us, right? Know that our Savior's there. <laughs> we didn't even know he was there, but he's there, right? He doesn't even let the enemy say anything, <laughs> right? Here Melchizedek have nowhere comes and he's the one that begins to speak, right? And he, and he has on hand with him bread and wine, right, to strengthen Abram. This is the first mention of bread and wine, and it's the only place that they're mentioned together other than, of course, the Lord's Supper. Interesting. These symbols remind us, right, of our Savior's death. And so when we consider the price that Christ paid to save us from sin, we are strengthened to resist every temptation. Right? If you're struggling, one of the best ways for you to resist temptation is to consider the price that Christ paid for you. His death on Calvary. One of the great ways to be able to resist sinful temptation. But this guy, Melchizedek, he appears in the scene. And I wish we had time. We don't have time. But man, we could go to Hebrews chapter 7. And like I said, we could do a whole series on just Melchizedek. But for those that don't know, Melchizedek means uh, the king of righteousness. Okay? And you'll see also that he's the king of Salem. And Salem, right, is uh, short for Jerusalem, but it means peace. And so here's this guy, he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. Does it sound familiar? And he's the priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek is a symbol of Christ here, the true king of righteousness and peace. And you read in, in Hebrews chapter 7 that you know, Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. And this, listen, this is important. This is to be understood only in connection with his priesthood. With his priesthood. You see, most priests, they inherit their office, right? Um, based on their, uh, who they're descendants of, right? You had to be of the tribe of Levi. You had to be of the family of Aaron. And if you weren't, you wouldn't, couldn't be a priest. And not only that, but these priests also serve for a limited time. In fact, Hebrews tells us that death kept them from serving. Couldn't serve forever, okay? Um, but the priesthood of Melchizedek was unique in that as far as the record is concerned, his priesthood wasn't passed on to him from his parents, right? It says there he didn't have a beginning or an end, right? Speaking of eternity. And that's why Hebrews chapter 7, right? Even in Psalm uh, chapter 110, verse 4, it says that Christ's priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek. In fact, he even gives us some more evidence here as to how great the priesthood is of Jesus Christ. Not only what Christ, his priesthood wasn't according to Levi or to Aaron, right? Which, which um, had a beginning and an end, right? But also, check this out, right? Abram, right? When you think of uh, the family of Aaron, you think of Levi, who did they come from ultimately? They came from Abraham, right? 
But notice what happens here. What takes place is Melchizedek in verse 18, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram. Not only that, in uh, end of verse 20, Abram gives him a tithe. Hebrews chapter 7, if you go look at that, that's significant. Because the one who blesses someone is inferior or greater. They're the greater one. And the writer of Hebrews says, hey, listen, if Melchizedek blessed Abram, then he must be greater than Abram. And Jesus is according to that priesthood, even greater than Aaron's priesthood. That's a great thing about Hebrews, right? The, the writer keeps showing us how Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. But not only that, he says, wait a minute. If you give a tithe to someone, doesn't that mean that that person is greater too? Right? It's the lesser person who has to tithe. And that's true too. Here, and I think it's so cool, right? That um, the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abram, right? And then Abram, in turn, gave him a tithe of all that he captured, right? Means that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than that of Aaron's because the one who blesses is superior and the one who is blessed than the one who is blessed and because the lesser always pays tithes to the greater. Melchizedek is a crucial figure in this account because he puts Abram's victory in proper theological perspective. There's no backslapping, no politicking. Melchizedek is a king and a priest. He's not a politician. His words were intended to remind Abram Right? That the victory was whose? God's. And that his success, Abram's success, was the result of God's blessing. Man, how important are those words to us today? Man, as God gives you victory, as God gives you success, don't think for one moment that it had anything to do with you. Thank you. Thank you. We're almost there. We're approaching the... Okay. His words were a reminder of the covenant that God had made with Abram when he called him from Ur to Canaan. Right? What a witness of the glory of God and the sinfulness of Sodom. Right? Picture the king of Sodom having to what he saw and heard. Right? He hears the king of Salem urge Abram to give the glory to God. And then he watches Abram give a tenth of all the spoils to this king, to the king of Salem. And so now, Abram, right, he goes from worship to warfare again. This time he will face an even more subtle type of warfare than meeting the physical enemy. His test is to involve spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies, confronting him through the worldly king of Sodom, how tempting this offer may have been to Abram, right? The, the king here, we haven't read it yet. The king says, hey, listen, you keep the spoils. Just give me the people back, right? Because remember, Abram had taken all the ones from, from Sodom, right, uh, from their victory. He said, listen, you keep all that stuff. You, you earned it, you know, and I'll just take the people back. And so again, how tempting this offer could have been to Abram, right? By all rights, 
and even the request of the king of Sodom. The spoils were his. Right? In a way, it was poetic justice. Lot had chosen Sodom for its promise of material blessings. Lot had seemingly gotten the best of Abram, and now God was giving it back to Abram, to whom it should have belonged in the first place. It was poetic justice. The king of Sodom said, in effect, give me the persons, you take the material things. Just on a side note, again, I think the enemy tempts us the same way today, doesn't he? He tempts us to be occupied with the toys of dust while people around us are perishing. Listen, you enjoy all that stuff you guys got. Don't worry about the people who are perishing right now. You give them to me. Don't worry about them. Sometimes we become preoccupied, right, with the stuff that we have, the things that we have that we've forgotten why we're here. (laughs) The harvest is white. The laborers are few. But Abram refused to take anything from the king of Sodom. Abram learned from his experience in Egypt, didn't he? He took all the stuff from Pharaoh. He's learned now. Those words of Melchizedek were so important, right? He's learned now from his experience. Abram says, no, no, I'm not taking anything from you, right? Not only did he learn from his experience in Egypt, but he also learned from his time with Melchizedek. Did you notice Abram's response? I don't know if you noticed it here. Um, Verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Where did he get those words? He got them from Melchizedek. Right? Okay. He got them from the king of Salem. Where else? You see, the, the arrival of the king of Salem, Melchizedek, was a turning point for Abram because it brought his victory into perspective. Note, church, listen, the saint must give the glory to God for any victory is ultimately his, not ours. It's his. And I'll close with this. As I said, we're looking at these two men, right? Abram and Lot. The results in the lives of Lot and Abraham were vastly different, weren't they? Lot obtained what he wanted, earthly prosperity, but spiritually, it may be questioned whether he was ever happy. After making that choice, he was no witness for God, no real blessing in his home, and in the end, came spiritual and social disaster. Abraham's experience was very different, wasn't it? God became an increasing reality to him. There was glory and power in his life, and we are sure that he never regretted his action in putting God first. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for um, your precious word. And uh, we just, again, we pray that we may be able to apply some of these truths that, that we would just not be impressed by some of these things that we've learned today, but that they would actually change us. Um, Lord, that, uh, that we ourselves uh, would seek to glorify you in every area of our lives. Um, Lord, we pray this in the precious name of our Savior, the King of righteousness, the King of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.